Welcome to Enterprising Mindsets. My name is Sharon Davis, Chief Executive of Young Enterprise, and each week we'll be exploring different people's perspectives on an enterprising mindset. My guest today needs no real introduction, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about him before I introduce him. He's been a leading force in retail for the last 40 years, having found his passion for retail working as a salesman in watches of Switzerland in London. After working in mortgages and insurance, he found his way back to his passion, retail, and is known for turning around businesses such as Lacenza, Robert Dias, Ryman, and launching his own lingerie retail brand, Bow Avenue, 10 years ago. He was also chairman of Millwall Football Club for a few years, but is probably best known to us, I'm sure, through his many seasons on BBC's Dragon's Den, where he made many a deal with flourishing entrepreneurs. He's also been a regular current affairs commentator on the likes of BBC News and Question Time. He is the Chancellor of Solon University and also supports over 3,000 small businesses through his SBS Small Business Sunday initiative, helping small businesses to thrive in the UK. He's a busy man. Theo Pathetis, welcome to Enterprising Mindsets. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Tell me about the start of your journey. Were you always destined to be an entrepreneur? This is a question that many, many people ask me. And I've got to tell you, it's not a black and white binary answer. I came to the United Kingdom uh, as a young man, six years old, and not speaking a word of the language, struggled quite heavily to learn to speak English. And as it turned out later, it was through dyslexia. So I always had to find work crowds. Listen, there's no doubt I was bright. Please don't feel sorry for me. But I just couldn't deal with academia. So I constantly had to find work rounds to get through school. And those work rounds took me to all sorts of places. And you talk about the entrepreneurial spirit. Well, it's problem solving. A lot of people will equate an enterprising mindset with setting up your your own business. And But I know people who are extremely enterprising, who work in other people's business. So I'm not so sure it's that straightforward. What's your definition of an enterprising mindset? First of all, you have to have a passion for what you're doing. You can be the most enterprising person in the world, but if you're not passionate about it and can't, can't get off your butt, you're not really going to achieve very much. So there has to be the drive, there has to be the passion, and we all show passion in different ways. Don't, don't, don't take me or somebody else's definition of passion when I talk about something. I've seen some very quiet, passionate people uh, who have done incredibly well, but they've had the passion and the drive, and they show it in their own way. You could have someone who is, is quiet, perhaps an introvert, but absolutely passionate about what it is that they're doing. And that manifests itself in, in a different way. Correct. When I speak to kids at schools or universities, we talk about enterprise, entrepreneurism. There are so many different people, though, different types of people. You can't pigeonhole an entrepreneur. That's a great point, because I think there are a lot of examples of, of entrepreneurs, really famous entrepreneurs and quite a lot of those examples or role models look like quite extrovert people. When you're on Dragon's Den, is there a certain attitude or mindset that you look for from a potential entrepreneur you want to invest in, as well as the product? I realised very quickly that a really good person with an average idea was a lot better investment than somebody with a good idea, but I didn't like. So I really needed to like the people I really needed to feel I could connect with them. I really needed to feel that they could deliver, irrespective of how clever the idea was. So 
I would always go for, you know, a really good person with an average idea as opposed to just jump in because somebody had a good idea but would not be able to deliver it. Going back to your start, Theo, what's great is that you were brought up in Gorton, is that right, Manchester? Yes, yes, and, and then to, and then North London after that. I know they're, they're quite a distance apart, but um, yeah, yeah, those are the two. Went from and you know went from Old Trafford, Gorton to Highbury. There's a common thread there. <laughs> Indeed, and so were there moments in your life where you just look back and you just think life could have been very, very different for me? I, I, th- I think yes. I th- if we go back to this, why do people become entrepreneurs? A lot of a lot of really good entrepreneurs I know actually became entrepreneurs because they had no other options. If I was academic, I, I'm pretty sure I would have gone on to do something else. But school was a no-no for me. It was a disaster. At the age of 16, you know, they showed me the door and, and they said they really liked me. They didn't know how they were going to manage without me, but they were going to give it a good go. It just did not work for me. I couldn't take in the information and repeat the information in the ways that the school needed you to do it. So that made it very, very difficult to then to go and um, get a job. So you end up in some ways being forced to create your own work. Did you think that that absence perhaps of some kind of safety net really helped that drive? The fact that you were thinking look, I need to create my own options here. I, I think there wasn't an option. So your, your options were incredibly limited. And even from tender age or about 13, I always was doing little jobs for money because my family didn't have any money. So mum couldn't really give me very much. So if I wanted the things that my friends had, I'd have to find the money outside the family. That resourcefulness, that initiative sounds like it comes from a very very early age and then because and I think there's something around mindset isn't there which is about resourcefulness it's about looking at how we can continue to grow so you went into retail passion you're passionate about retail how did that then transfer into you then beginning to build these businesses yeah well, well retail wasn't where, where I started I mean I got a job as a filing clerk in a Lloyds of London brokerage and quite frankly I was just grateful for a job and, and they gave me a job because the government had were given an allowance in those days of um, fifteen hundred quid to every business that would take on somebody who didn't have a job straight out of school, and that was me. But to give a dyslexic a job filing, probably not a wise decision. But uh, I was great at making tea, and they they really liked me. I got really well with everybody there. Blatantly, it wasn't for me. Uh, I struggled even at that remedial position. So tell us tell us about the first business that you found then, Theo. So my first business was really um, starting up as a, as a sort of finance insurance broker. And that, that was born out of the fact that I by then moved on to legal in general, where I worked selling our insurance products to brokers and decided life was much, much more uh, rewarding on the other side of the fence. So I set up my own um, finance brokerage mainly dealing in commercial finance. So what made and, you take the risk, though? What team made you take the risk from having a company car and all that great things to saying, right, we're going to do this? Well, the only reason that I actually went to LNG was because they gave me a company car and, wait for it, a cheap mortgage. In those days, mortgage interest rates were about 10 12%. And, and they gave me a 1% mortgage, which means we could buy our house. 
So I went for all those comfortable things. But quite frankly, that I found it incredibly boring. And it wasn't, it wasn't, it, it didn't give me the passion and the desire that I wanted uh, and could thrive on. It was, again, very structured, very organized, as insurance companies are. And it just didn't do it for me. So whilst I was passionate about the finance side of things, I wasn't passionate about the structure that I had to be with it. It, it didn't work for me. I got on very well with everybody again. So when I actually said I wanted to go, uh, they gave me an agency so I could still represent them and allowed me to keep my um, cheap mortgage for a year, which uh, did give me that little bit of insurance. From then onwards, as, as I say, the rest is history. That's when I really sort of were, was able to express myself doing something I was passionate about, enjoyed. I was able to get the remuneration and make the money that I felt recognized the efforts and what I was doing. So the minute I could do that. And you've gone on to turn around businesses, as we've talked before, Lucenza, Ryman, Robert Dias. Clearly, we're in difficult times uh, as we speak at the moment. We're living through. What role do you think an enterprising mindset has in developing the capacity and resilience of this country uh, and the workforce within this country, within the current climate? Current climate will now breed, in my opinion, more entrepreneurs than ever before. Because if we go back to how we started this conversation, there'll be a requirement. There'll be a requirement for people to go out there and do their own thing. And more and more people will actually be thinking and executing their dreams of running their own business, working for themselves. Technology has added a huge ability to allow us now to do this in a much, much simplistic way than ever before. You don't need premises. You can work from home. Uh, you've got the internet where you can reach customers. These are all things that didn't happen before. Oh, so they have, they didn't exist. And do you think there's more that we can all be doing as a country to develop that mindset? I think there's always more that people can do. And I know the government uh, are bringing out all sorts of initiatives at the moment. Some, I'm sure, will hit the mark. Some won't hit the mark. Facts of life. The acceptance of lots of different ways of working and earning a living now, I think, will be a massive boost historically this thing about having to go to a workplace, go to an office, go to a shop, and that was the only way you, you thought you could work efficiently and make a living. And unless you did one of those things, you weren't properly employed. I mean, that's always been nonsense, but no more so now. And obviously now people have found themselves in a position where they can do all manner of things and spend more quality time with their family, yeah. working from home, or close to home. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I literally up until COVID, I was uh, commuting away three or four nights a week and uh, and then coming home at weekends. I've probably seen more of my family than I've ever seen of them. And yet my time is, is really productive because I'm doing more than, I'm, I'm not spending that time commuting. So I couldn't agree with that, with that more. So... Young Enterprise works with young people, uh, young people supporting them to develop that enterprising mindset and the critical skills. What more do you think we could be doing to support young people to prepare themselves for that future world of work? Something I've preached for a long time is children are never, ever too young to learn about enterprise because enterprise is a life skill. It's not just about a way of making a living in later life. It's a life skill. 
the ability to communicate, the ability to present, the ability to understand. These are all things that you need in your life. And I've been a big supporter of enterprise going right into primary schools. And that's what was brilliant about Dragon's Den because our mailbag at Dragon's Den was predominantly from kids. Really? Yeah, I, I mean, a vast majority was kids. And what kind of questions were they asking you? Well, everything from how do I start? I want to be an entrepreneur. Well, of course, it's not, it's not taught in schools. It wasn't recognised as a subject. It is, it is now. And what was really interesting is that it pressed people's buttons. Kids were watching it and they were interested in it. And it was, it was a very simplistic way of explaining business. It was very watchable as well, wasn't it? It was just yeah, so, it was very so it wasn't, you know, you could, you could just see kids would say to me, look, where did the BBC find all these stupid people that don't know their numbers? You know, and, and that's a kid saying it. So you can see that that kid, in the penny dropped. If I'm going to be successful, if I'm going to do this, I better know what I'm talking about. One of the things that I really think is important is working with young people and helping them understand the role that failure plays in learning and failure plays in innovation. What's your view on, on failure? It's strange. It, 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 it is easy. It is getting easier. But certainly not kingdom in the past. If you'd had a failure, you were tarnished. And, you know, you mustn't talk about it. One of the things that uh, I and, and some of my um, fellow dragons actually always talk about is the good, the bad and the ugly, our, our successes and our failures, because we can learn from failures. There's just one key rule that you've got to understand when you go into business or want to become an entrepreneur. You are going to fail at some stage on something. So the key rule is never, ever bet the farm. In other words, don't go all in. Learn from your failure, failures, but just make sure the fail, your failures don't kill you off. So make sure it's recoverable. Exactly. So, so calculated risks, sensible risks, not reckless. And that's a whole different subject. I can imagine. And there must have been times, Theo. I mean, you're extraordinarily successful, but there must have been times when you were disappointed or even scared. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I often talk about it. I, I, I can remember not being 30 yet, uh, managed to uh, do incredibly well. We, me and Mrs P got married. We had three kids. We were living in this great big mansion with an indoor swimming pool, a uh, snooker room, a tennis court, electric gates, you know, sort of things that as a child growing up in a tenement block, I always dreamt that one day I might have. Never mind achieve it by the age of 30. And I can remember quite clearly in the crash of um, the late 80s, uh, going home and seeing Mrs. P preparing the kids' dinner. I said, you're home early. I said, yeah, yeah, it's not been great. Um, I said, uh, you know this house? And she said, yes. I said, I said do you know, you know we, own it, we own it jointly? And she said, yes. I said, no, no, jointly with the bank. She said, ah, yes. Well, they would like it back. Oh, my word. Exactly. Um, so we had to sell the house, and then we bought a much, much smaller house. Uh, and that would be about 1989. 
1990. And we had to start all over again. But whilst um, there, was a, there was a huge uh, recession and crash in, in, uh, at that time, which um, caused all the value I'd built up to disappear. But the point being, I'd always kept a little bit to one side and I could learn from those experiences. And one of the learnings for me from those experiences, never be leveraged. So I'm not, I never have been leveraged. Tell so us a little bit has, more about that. Well, leverage is don't, don't borrow too much money. Don't hock yourself up to the eyeballs. Banks will lend you money when the sun's shining. It's like an umbrella, They'll lend you an umbrella when the sun's shining. But when it poured down with rain in 1989 for me, they took my umbrella away. So I never wanted to be in that position where I was reliant on banks if things went wrong, mm-hmm. that I couldn't then work my way through. And what kept you going when you sold the house? You told Mrs. P about the, the joint owning with the bank. You sold the house. It must have been difficult at times. What kept you going to say, well, I'm going to start again and we're going to do things differently? My family, my three children, my wife, my ambition, licking my wounds because I felt stupid, because, you know, with hindsight, why, you know, borrowing all that money, and then interest rates went up to 15% and the value of the assets had gone down. So I was never going to be able to meet the payments. Uh, all those things which left me exposed, those were learnings. And I'd made those mistakes, but so I had many, many others. But I, I knew I could go and achieve again. But this time, I would never put myself in that position uh, where I was reliant on third parties for my future. And it's so refreshing to hear you talk so honestly about your experiences. I'm sure you will inspire many people listening today. If you look at where people have made their money, entrepreneurs have made their money, it's rarely on the first venture. It's, it's, it's often second, third, and sometimes fourth or fifth venture. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't have to go right first time. You can keep out there learning from what you did before to make the second time better. Yeah. And I suppose sometimes if it doesn't go wrong, then you don't actually get the opportunity to make it better the next Correct. time. Yeah. Correct. So so people should not be discouraged by the fact that they've gone into a business venture or started and, and it hasn't worked out for them. They should not because they've learned something from that. But you're so, so the second right. one will be better. But you're so right. As a, as a culture, we really don't talk about failure in the way that you've just described in saying, well, actually, it can make the second venture or the third or the fourth much better. And, and the statistics show this. It's just, as you say, we don't like talking about yeah. it. How do you think we can change that? Because I think we, we need to change that. We need to help young people to, we need to free them up of that, that, that worry and that discouragement about, about the experience or the, the culture of failure. How do you think we can change that? Well, there's a lot of things that go into this blackening of, of one's character because they haven't succeeded in adventure they've had the get up and go they've put the money where their mouth was um so they've had the courage but it didn't work out that doesn't make them bad people bad business people but you know there's been huge pressures here with media and all sorts of things but i do believe now that it's far more accepted in our society our society has been let's say a lot more conservative in this area than 
the United States, yeah. for instance. It's a badge um, of innovation, isn't it, to have failed? Yeah, yeah. Ab absolutely. So, but I do think society in the United Kingdom now, it has moved on a long, long way where people can see through just that initial cloud of disappointment because somebody has failed or hasn't achieved in the previous venture and give them a second chance. Because I go back to what I said earlier, statistically, if you look at all the successful entrepreneurs, it's their second, third and fourth venture. Great to hear. I've just got a couple more questions of you. Tell me about your good habits or your rituals that help you nurture that. What seems to me to be a Teflon belief in the art of the possible? Well, the first one as an entrepreneur, and if you haven't got this one, then uh, you shouldn't bother. And that is, you've got to put the hours and the work in. Uh, if you don't do that, then I'm sorry, the likelihood, I'm not saying it's impossible, but the likelihood of you being successful are going to be minimal. And, you know, there's a great saying by Gary Player, the, the famous golfer, which goes something like, the harder I work, the luckier I get. And, you know, you find that in many, many entrepreneurs. You know, I hear people saying, he was lucky, she was lucky. Amazing, that luck. <laughs> it is amazing. You know, the harder they work, the luckier they get. So let's just remember that even when you're going through bad times and you find that your luck's really run out on you, just keep working hard. I'll promise you, I'll guarantee you, your luck will come back. That's the first one that I've always prescribed to this one. Go back to our original chats when we're talking about passion. If you're passionate about what you do, you're likely to be successful because you're not treating it as a job because you can't wait to spring out of bed and go and do more of it. I know exactly so, what that feels like in my job right now. I can tell you. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So it's not a job. It's something you yeah. love, love doing. Every so day. you can really put the hours in, the work ethic in, and surprisingly, you become successful. But again, it's the, the other thing about overnight successes. It takes a long time, long time. for people to become overnight yeah. successes. They do lots of things in the background, before, after, previous businesses, and then they become a success. Oh, she's an overnight success. He's an overnight success. But actually, they've had two other businesses previously. What's next? What's next for Theo Pathesis? Ah, oh, well, so um, last year I celebrated my 60th birthday. I didn't quite celebrate it, to be perfectly frank. I achieved my 60th. Um, okay. <laughs> I had no problem with 40. I had no problem with 50. But by God, I had a problem with 60. Really? Why? Well, because it's like old. I can remember 60-year-olds. I used to have to help them across the road. <laughs> so, you know, it was, it was a strange thing to say, to see, well, actually, you've reached that age. And I started quite young. I achieved quite a lot as a young age. And then realised, actually, there's other people out there doing it now. There's other young people achieving lots uh, at a young age. And uh, you, you are in the twilight of your career. But saying all that, I still have huge passion for what I do, love what I do, and I can't see myself retiring. I've got a great management team uh, around me that do all the work, bless them. And I was discussing this the other day with some colleagues. It's now looking for that next challenge in this new modern world. And there is a lot of new challenges now because 
The world is changing. Consumer habits are changing. The way we lead our lives are changing. As I said earlier, it's a very exciting time to be an entrepreneur even for someone starting to be an entrepreneur. And you're such a massive advocate of small businesses. Um, so you're supporting over 3,000 small businesses through the hashtag SBSS, uh, Small Business Sunday initiative. Do you see that continuing? Oh, absolutely. And that's just going from strength to strength mm-hmm. because it, it, it's a self-help group, uh, quite honestly. And it, it's something I started again on Mrs. P's kitchen table a few years back. Small businesses reaching out, helping each other, finding information, and we've had some great successes within those businesses. And some and some have stopped. But interestingly enough, I've got guys and girls from uh, in the SBS group who this is their third SBS business Brilliant. or fourth where their business haven't worked out. And you'll be celebrating, is it 10 years this year? This, Ten, yeah, this year? absolutely. So these, these guys and, and girls have started businesses in their front rooms at the diner, and they haven't worked out. But through inspiration of looking at others, they've done other things. And, you know, it's great when you see them on a third attempt really crack it. Theo, thank you so much for sharing your passion, your insights, your experience on Enterprising Mindset. It's been a pleasure to interview you. Thank you. Pleasure to speak to you too. Enterprising Mindsets is part of a podcast series brought to you by Young Enterprise. To listen to more episodes, please find us through your usual podcast services.